You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Uh, if we don't know each other, I'm Nick. I'm a pastor here in Alani Life. Uh, and now is the time in our service where we get to do a Bible study together. But before we do that, man, what a crazy week we had with weather, right? We've already acknowledged it. Like, think about this. Like, if we were playing Midwest bingo, weather bingo, we won hands down for like the rest of the like century, right? Monday, there were tornadoes. Wednesday was fake spring, right? And everybody was out and it was great. Uh, Friday, we had torrential rain and then a snowstorm in the same day, right? And now it's 50 and sunny and beautiful. Like, I don't even know what's going on. Uh, I, th- I thought, like, man, do I want to live here anymore? This is crazy. Uh, it's pretty normal, though, isn't it, for us? We're used to this. Uh, this isn't weather commentary. It's Bible study time. I just, I couldn't pass that up. That was a crazy week, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, I hope you had a chance to enjoy the beautiful weather on Wednesday, and hopefully you do later today. Come with us to uh, join us at Breaking Bread. Uh, Maybe go ride some bikes with people afterwards in the afternoon, or go play out, throw throw a ball around, or enjoy some quiet time on a a blanket. I, let's dive into our passage, right? And I, I hope you had a chance to study this ahead of time in your, in your small groups this week. I love that part of our rhythm. We get a chance to sort of do our pre-lab. And I heard a lot of reports this week. I heard a lot of reports from groups that you had more questions than you had answers as you engaged with this passage. And that's okay. That's okay. Sometimes when we study the word, especially tricky passages in the Old Testament, we can, this can happen, right? More questions can generate than we can get answers to. It causes us to make, it makes us think, causes us to do some digging, to do some research, maybe ask some questions to those around us and, and pull our community in. I hope, I hope I can bring some clarity to some of those questions. Some of you shared those questions with me, so I think I'll bring some clarity to some of those. I don't, I don't expect I'll, I'll answer all those questions. So if there's some burning questions from your small group or, or just in your own study this week, come talk to me at Breaking Bread. We'll see if we can figure any of those out together. As we, as we look at the passage, maybe a little bit more in depth or, or look from the angle that you were looking at. Lots of questions. That's what I heard this week. And it got me thinking. Lots of questions is the space I live in in my life these days because I have a five-year-old son. Lots of questions. And especially lots of questions when we watch movies together, right? It's just lots of, who's the bad guy, Dad? What, what, did, what does that word mean? Why did they do that? Who's the good guy? What's going on? What does that mean? And then, and then as the tension rises in the, in the movie, as every story has, right, the rising conflict, the tension, he starts to get nervous. He gets anxious. He bounces with worry. Sometimes he stands on the couch and jumps with worry. Dad, is it going to be okay? Is, is he going to be, are the bad guys going to win? Right? Mom, tell me it's going to be fine. He gets really worried. He gets nervous. Is it going to be okay? Tell me, please. Will the good guys win? The other day, we were actually watching Aladdin, which I thought was a fairly just straightforward, like fun movie. That's the way I remembered it. And we had to turn it off 20 minutes in because he was so nervous for Aladdin. He was so worried. It was just too intense for him. He didn't know what was going to happen, and he just could not trust that he would be okay. Too much tension. In the midst of conflict and tension in a story, my son wants to know how it's going to turn out. So he knows if it's worth sitting through the tension and worry. 
If he knows if it's worth dealing with the scary parts, Dad. Right? Is it worth dealing with worry and nervous? Will the main character be okay? Do I want to watch this story anymore? He needs assurance that it's going to be all right. He needs a vision of the future to know if the present is worth dealing with or if we should just get out of that situation. And why am I sharing that? Because vision for the future is where we live. That's the, that's the story we live as Christians. That's the life we live. Ultimately, God, we know God wins. He's given us the vision of the future. In the end, evil will be bound for good and all creation will be restored. And God will be worshipped once again. And, and maybe, maybe God does this for us because he knows we're not that much different than five-year-olds, even as we age, right? Or maybe he does this because he knows the trials we face in a, in a life marred with sin. Maybe, maybe he does this to, to offer us a future perspective just to carry us through the hardships of our present situation. Right? God has always done this for his people. Right? Even back in the beginning, in the garden, right? sin enters the world. The fall happens, and God tells Adam and Eve, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. It's the, the serpent head crusher prophecy. It's the first prophecy in the Bible, if you want to look, use that trivia. I would argue it's the first prophecy. It declares that, that someone will right this wrong. God gives a picture of the end. Right? Jesus declaring his return, he tells his disciples, I'm coming back. He gives them a picture of the end. Revelation, the book of Revelation, gives us that picture of the glorious hope of God's ultimate victory over evil. All throughout Scripture, all along, God has given a picture of the future. He promises a better future for us. One where evil isn't present, where evil has been eradicated, bound once and for all. Even, even back in the calling of Abram, right? I've given you a few handholds. The calling of Abram in Genesis 12, we see this. God offered Abram a promise for the future. Let me read that promise to you. This is foundational. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your, your family, and your father's house and to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who you bless, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. From the outset, God's heart was to bless all nations, all people. And we can best understand blessing, what bless all people is, as experience the presence of God, being in relationship, in right standing before God. That's what he does. He brings us back to relationship with him. He gives us his presence. And he tells this to an old man who has no children to leave his family and go somewhere else, and he's going to make him into a great nation. That takes faith to follow through. God gave him a picture of what it would take, and that carried him forward. I'll make you into a great nation to accomplish God's purposes to bless the whole earth, right? He gave Abram a future hope. Now, as we encounter the servant in our song this morning, in our second servant song, the servant of God, we're going to see this mission reaffirmed. That's why I wanted to start there this morning. 
We're going to see the humanity of the servant on full display. We're going to see the glory of God manifest in the servant. We're going to see a beautiful poem showing as the ultimate mission of God, his end game. Right? So what is the end game of God? What is that picture? What is the end game of God? Let's take a look at the passage and unpack that. Let's, let's get at, at that to get some answers. We're in Isaiah 49 this morning. That's the second servant song. You know, we're, we're working through the, the four servant songs in Isaiah in, uh, during our Lent series here. This morning, you can, you can turn there and follow along the passage. As usual, we'll have the, the verses up on the screen for you to follow along as well. Uh, generally, for reference, I teach from the ESV if you want to follow along more easily in what I'm reading. Now remember, from the past week, and, and as we framed this series in a few weeks ago, as we encounter more servant songs, we're learning more about the servant. We're, we're building out our understanding of who this servant is. Sort of more is taking shape. We're understanding more and more of who he is. More is re- being revealed about him. So that's what we're going to see more of this morning. Let's get to it. But we're just focusing on the first seven verses of this chapter. And to start, I'm going to do something a little different. I want to read these seven verses all as one unit. I want you to hear them. I want you to listen to this song. Now think about this. This was originally a prophetic message from Isaiah. He spoke these words to the people. So listen to it. Hear the dialogue. Imagine what it was like to hear this. You're going to hear it now. Imagine what it was like in Isaiah's context. Then we're going to walk through uh, in, a few, in a few separate chunks. So, so here's, here's our passage. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So right off the bat, I want to acknowledge it's hard to track prophecy, especially when there's a lot of different voices going on. And that's what's happening here, right? There's dialogue. There's different speakers at different times. There's responses back and forth, right? Just, just at bare minimum in this passage, we have Isaiah prophesying a message that's been recorded here. 
the messages from God, and we have the servant speaking, right? There's three different entities at play here, at minimum. That can be hard to track. And so when you encounter a passage like this, I, I, it's helpful to track dialogue and see who's talking to who and, and try to identify those people, right? If, if they're not readily available or readily identified. It might take some digging to do that. Sometimes a different translation can help you. Some translations are a little bit more uh, robust in helping break that up for you. So I encourage you, if that gets confusing as you study passages like this, go ahead, read other translations. You don't have to just stick to the one that you're used to. But right off the bat, in this passage, we notice it opens with a command, right? Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is a message for all creation, all people. All people. The whole world. It's a global address. Yet we're not sure who is making that address. Could be Isaiah. Could be God. Could be somebody else. Either way, the whole earth is called to attention. And something important is about to be said. It's rare for a prophetic address to be made to the entire world, to the whole world. So right away, we know something special is happening here. The prophets were sent to Israel. Generally, their message was to Israel. This is to the whole world. It's something beyond just the people of God at the moment. So let's reread the first three verses and start unpacking what this impo- what's imp- so important about this. Here, we're going to learn more about the, his, the servant and his connection to God. So let's read, uh, picking back up halfway through verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. By the time we reach verse 3, we learn the name of the servant. We understand who has been speaking. It's the servant of the Lord. The text so far, it's been first-person descriptions, right? It's, it's talking about who this person is, how they're formed, what God has done with them. God has called them, prepared them. And then we know the name of the individual. Kind of, verse 3 kind of re- reshapes all that has happened so far. Refills, it fills in the gaps. And the servant, the servant that we've just learned about, was called by God before his birth, right? Formed in his mother's womb. He was known and named by God there. There's a true humanity to the servant is the point here. He'll be born of a mother just like every other human being. But it's not by accident, right? There is intention. God has called him. He knew him. He named him all for his purposes. God's intentional here with this servant whom he formed in his mother's womb. The intention continues, right, as we, as we read that God prepared him with a mouth like a sharp sword, right? His, his speech is effective. His words accomplish what needs to be done. He's hidden in the shadow of God's hand. He's protected by God. He's an arrow in the quiver, right? He's ready for battle to accomplish God's glorious victory. He's been prepared by the Lord. Then, then we learn of his identity, just as he does. From the mouth of God, his identity is spoken. You are my servant, Israel. The original speaker we've been learning about 
is identified as the servant, and his name is now Israel. Not only do we we learn who he is, we learn that God would be glorified through him, right? Which is a bold statement. Just a bold statement. Let's Let's pause there for a minute. Throughout the Old Testament, God's glory is displayed by God himself. Through his works, through his actions, God's glory rests on God. And now it'll be on display through the servant. In him, I will be glorified. That's what the Lord says. Something special is happening with this servant. He will be the glory of God. He will manifest God's glory. So he's given a position of status, of identity. The glory of God will be on display that will make him effective to carry forward in in his purposes. So just in these opening verses, we see that the, the servant is called for a purpose. He's named. He's prepared. God has shaped his mouth. He's made him prepared for the work ahead. And he's given a unique position. He'll manifest God's glory. He'll be, he'll be displaying God. That's what the opening verses establish. That's who the servant is. He's been per- called for a purpose. He's been prepared for that purpose, and he's been, been positioned to accomplish that purpose. Now, a fascinating detail about the servant that is easy for us to miss or we could gloss over is his name, right? And this is where I know some questions came up. He's given the name Israel, which at first we might scratch our heads and wonder, is this servant just really the nation of Israel? And that's a valid question. It's an important question. The more we read in our passage, the more it's going to become clear that this is not a nation. This is a distinct individual one that will succeed and accomplish God's promise to Abram, where the nation has failed. This is a distinct individual. Now, it's not a stretch of the imagination for the name Israel to be for an individual rather than a nation, right? Think about your Old Testament history, and if you're not aware, I'll fill you in. The name of Israel is first the name of a person before it was the name of a nation. God is bringing it back full circle with the servant, the servant of God. Let me show you what I mean. In Genesis chapter 35, we encounter Jacob, where God encounters him. He gives him a new name. Let me read that to you. Picking up in verse 9 of Genesis 35, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken to him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offer and he poured out an oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Jacob was the original Israel. God passed the promise of Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, whom he renamed Israel. Here in Isaiah's prophecy, he reclaims the name of the servant. The nation hasn't done what God had desired, so the servant will. He's declaring the servant 
is the true Israel. God is invoking that original promise and his desire to be a blessing to all nations, reaching all the way back to Abram. So as we've met the servant, we see that he's, uh, we've, we've seen God intentionally call him and prepare him, right, and accomplish his mission. He's given him a position to accomplish that. And his glory manifests through him. He's affirmed his identity and his ability to follow through. God is intimately involved and connected with the servant, knowing him, forming him. This is how God has always operated with his servants. This is how God has always operated with individuals he has called for his purposes. He's prepared them for their work. He's given them position to do so, right? Just think about the stories. Stories of, of faith. Noah, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, the judges, the prophets, David, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples, you, and me. We're all called, all prepared, all provided, all provided for in order to accomplish the purpose of God, to move forward his mission. You've been called, you've been prepared, and you've been positioned to carry forward the mission of God. You know, whether, whether that's been to be a leader in ministry or to lead your friend to Jesus, God has prepared you for it. Let's be people who answer that call, who are faithful to that call, who live on mission. Let's faithfully obey and follow him. Let's keep reading and learn more about our servant. Pick back up in verses 4 and 5. Here we're going to see this servant discouraged. We're going to see God's response to his discouragement, his affirmation as he restores the servant. Verse 4, But I said, I have labored in vain, the servant is speaking again. I have sp spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense my, with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The servant declares his, his work has been for nothing, yet finds his reward in the Lord, which allows for God to speak truth, to remind him of the truth against that discouragement, right? to restore his strength, to root him back in his identity. At this point, you might be wondering, could this really be Jesus, right? Was Jesus really discouraged? Was his labor in vain? Was it pointless? When did he spend his strength for nothing? Is this really Jesus? Could it be? And some have asked that question, and some question, could, this, could the servant truly be Jesus because of that? I think to do so, I think, misses the truth of Jesus' ministry. I think it misses the truth, the reality of the humanity of Jesus as he served those years of ministry. And Jesus' Jesus' ministry was marked with rejection, right? We've, we've studied that over and over again. Unbelief, misunderstanding. The people he was sent to wanted to kill him for it. He rebuked the people for being faithless and, and twisted a twisted generation. He was frustrated with his disciples for not getting it at times, right? He knew the disciples would fall away. He told them so. Even Peter the rock, one of the inner circle, zealous for Jesus to, fo to follow after him. 
Even he would deny Jesus, and Jesus knew it. I think the servant statement here, it's sort of a flattening of all of Jesus' rejection and hardship of ministry. All the denial, the frustration, the not getting it, the misunderstanding, all the ways that people missed him. I think it's his, his needing to overcome that and God sh- showing him the ultimate goal to bring people back to him. The ultimate purpose is to re- reunite people with the Lord. Yeah, Jesus was frustrated, I would say. Jesus was discouraged in ministry. I think we can read that pretty clearly as we engage with Jesus in the text. But rather than give up, right, or criticize, he found his affirmation in God, right? He set his focus on the ultimate purpose, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, right? You and I, we aren't any different. If you haven't been frustrated by the church, if you haven't been discouraged in ministry, you will. And I'm sorry, that's the case. We are all sinners, even in the church. And that leads to heartache, frustration, and discouragement. Until the Lord returns, that will be the way of the church, as we all seek to fall on God's grace. When it happens, let's find our identity in the purpose of God, his mission, rather than the results, rather than the specifics of right now. Let's set our focus on God rather than numbers in, a, in seats or how big my small group is or how many people showed up to my event. Let's not focus on fleeting outcomes, right? Let's think about who we are serving. Keep our focus there. Right? Just as the servant found his strength in the Lord. Alana Life, let us find our strength in the Lord, not in our results, right? When you feel discouraged or frustrated, keep your focus on the Lord. I'm going to keep reading and finish out our passage. The last couple of verses here. In the final verses, we're going to see the true scope of the mission of the servant. Salvation reaching to the ends of the earth and his exalted status. So let's, let's read. He says, and now God is speaking, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servants of rulers. Kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So God speaks here to affirm the God-sized mission that the servant is to carry out. He's to restore the tribes of Jacob. That would be just too small. No, it goes beyond that. There's more. That was never Israel, the tribes of Jacob, that was never the end goal. The servant, the servant will be uh, put God's plan back on the tracks, back on the rails, and it's full steam ahead. Salvation to the ends of the earth. That was the end game from the beginning. A blessing to all nations. It's been the plan all the way back. It doesn't stop there, though, right? The, the servant, though he'll be rejected and despised, he will eventually be bowed down to by kings and princes. They he will tr- prove to be the true king of all, right? Exalted to the highest place and worthy of worship. All will bow to him. 
will prostrate themselves before him. At the time of Isaiah, Israel had lost sight of this calling and their purpose. Isaiah, he describes them in in his writings as, as bound, blind, and sinful, no longer fit for the task of being God's blessing to the world. It couldn't be a light to the nations because they couldn't even be a light to themselves. They'd lost it. They couldn't bring blessings to others because they weren't even a blessing to themselves. They'd gone dark. They'd lost sight of God. And the true servant, the servant of God, he must step in to be the true Israel. Where they had failed, the servant will succeed. He is the one that will unite all of God's people and include all of God's people in God's family. The thing of it, though, is is history repeats itself. And Israel, though it's restored and comes back after the Babylonian captivity, about 500 years later at the time of Jesus, they'd lost sight of it again. They'd become overly ethnocentric, avoiding those outside the faith because they were unclean. How can you be a blessing if you won't go and engage with these people? They're overly nationalistic, right? Dreaming of the glory days of Israel, make us great again and expecting them to return without considering why they had left in the first place, their sin, their abandonment of God. When it caused them to lose sight of God in the first place, they failed to address those things, and so they failed to be a blessing to themselves. They failed to be a light to themselves and couldn't be for others. They lost sight of being a light to the nations, being God's blessing to all people. As a result, many of them missed Jesus. They crucified him instead instead of following him. Alani Life, are, are we in jeopardy of doing the same thing today? I think God's people need to ask that over and over again. Would we miss Jesus in our day? Would we miss the servant in our day? The church today, we await the return of Jesus, the final chapter in God's plan to restore all creation. Have we lost sight of the calling? Have we failed to be a blessing to ourselves, to those around us? Have we failed to be a light to ourselves and those around us? I hope we haven't. I pray we haven't. I pray we keep our focus on Jesus, on the end game. We keep moving forward on that mission. Let's strive to be God's people. Be Be prepared for his work, to be called by him, prepared for him, and positioned to glorify him. All so that others can know him and do the same, right? Let's live with, like, and for Jesus and invite others to do the same, as we like to say around here. So as, as I kind of try to wrap this up to this morning, as we try to pull it all together, what, are, what have we seen? I'm going to go back to that question we started with, right? What is God's endgame? What is he after? What has he been after all along? Where is all of it headed? God's heart as we saw, has always been for the nations, for all creation. From the moment Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden, God has been working to bring humanity back to him, back to to relationship with him. He's been working to restore all people, to be a blessing, to be in relationship with us once again. As Jesus took on flesh, he, he continued that mission. He stepped back into creation to be with us. God in human flesh. 
He was called and known by God, knit together in Mary's womb. He's equipped and prepared for his mission through his connection with the Father. He he united all tribes of the earth to come home to God in his death, eradicating sin. We only place our faith in him. And ultimately, in the resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he displays the true glory of God as he reigns over creation. Jesus is the servant of God, the true Israel from whom the great nation of God's people was established, the one who brought salvation to the ends of the earth, right? And the one all kings and rulers bow to and will in the end. In the book of Revelation, there's a beautiful picture of this end game. Sometimes I have to go here to be reminded. Let me read that to you. Let this picture sit with you. Think about it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were of healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus, the servant of God, will heal the nations. He will be a light to the world. There will be no more darkness, no more pain, no more death. Only creation, worshiping God for eternity. That's the end game. That's where it's headed. God restoring all things. God wins. In the end, God wins. When things begin to feel tense, when you wonder if it's worth sticking through the scary parts, God wins in the end. That's the end, that's the end game. It's worth living through the tension. It's worth living through the hardship. God wins in the end. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Come soon. So, Align in Life, as we continue through Lent, I want to encourage us all. Let us keep our focus on the glorious promise of the future, that God wins in the end. Let us repent of the ways we've lost sight of God in our lives, the ways we've lost sight of that mission, and let us return. Let's find our hope in God and his great work through his servant, Jesus. Will you pray with me?